0: And welcome to another edition of Truth in Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jeeks Goldfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, hop on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. As always, whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. Featured in this episode is music consultant and career coach Tom Vickers, who was a guest a few months back to discuss his role as George Clinton's Minister of Information during the 1976-1980 to peak years of the Parliament Funkadelic Empire. Given his extensive experience and knowledge beyond P-Funk, we decided to connect once again, to discuss other aspects of his career in the music industry, having spent parts of five decades behind the scenes of a notoriously turbulent and sometimes decadent industry that's undergone major changes during that time, Vickers candidly and colorfully tells what living that life was like. In three segments, he shares the inner workings of music publishing, artists and repertoire, or A and R as it's called. And putting together compilation packages along the way. He also closes the loop on some P funk matters talks Roger Troutman Billy Gibbons American Idol and more. And now here's the concluding part three on assembling compilation packages. So now I'm out of
1: Mercury out of the corporate record biz and I'm going now what you know now what do I do. so. I am sort of a historian. I have a, a BA in U.S. history. I know a lot about the history of music. I had friends at, at uh, Capital and their special products division, Rhino Records, Richard Foose and Harold Bronson, good friends, different uh, Sony Legacy, people, Jeff Jones and people I knew at Sony Legacy. So I said, well, why don't I start doing compilation albums? So there's a label that was a big, again, folk label. This is a long way from my P-Funk years. Now it's P-Folk, you know? (laughs) So there was a label called Vanguard Records, which was very popular in the, I'm going to say, 60s into early mid-70s. For jazz. No, mainly for folk. It (laughs) did have a jazz component, but the biggest artist on the label was Joan Baez. Joan Baez made this label a pile of dough. And with Joan Baez, when the folk uh, revival also hit the blues revival, they signed <laughs> Mississippi John Hurt, Skip James, uh, people like that, along with they had a guy um, who would work out of Chicago. And he did a three-album set called Chicago the Blues Today, which uh, introduced... Buddy Guy, Junior Wells, Otis Rush, uh, James Cotton, Jimmy Shines, a lot of the killer Chicago bluesmen into the broader spectrum. When it was originally recorded, it was the early years, days of bands like the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, The Blues Project, etc. So this was sort of the template for the blues, electric blues revival. There's even a picture of Jimi Hendrix holding up the Chicago The Blues Today volume one album at his flat in London. That's how much influence this record had. So aside from blues and folk, they also had some jazz. They had some electronica. They had uh, a band called The Space Cadets, which I had known through the P-Funk years, bernie Worrell, a guy named nairobi sailcat a, a scottish guy named jesse ray and uh they made a, a an album as the space cadets and there was a song on there called disco monster
0: so i'm um, you know i want to say that was 83
1: yeah somewhere in there originally yeah so what happened was um, i went over to Vanguard Records, Cole call, didn't know anyone there. It had been bought by the heirs of Lawrence Welk. Lawrence Welk's son and grandson were now running Vanguard Records. So I had a meeting with them, and they would put all the original albums out. They hadn't remastered them, hadn't done album notes, hadn't done anything to sort of spit polish them up. So I gave them a whole pitch and they said, well look, why don't you do two two to start and let's see how it works. So I did Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. And I came up with a brand called the Vanguard Sessions. And uh, they did so well with these things that they hired me on. And I'm gonna show you a number of these things that I did for Vanguard right now because I've got them all here um hold on one sec well
0: Diane Wells well certainly did a lot of collaborations too
1: yeah yeah so um there were a ton of top folk acts there and i'm just again i'm going to put these in front of the camera so you can get sort of a vibe um I did over 60 compilation releases for Vanguard, including the Jim and Jug Band, who were out kind of Boston and Cambridge, very popular act at the time. Jeff Muldar and Maria Muldar got their start in the Jim Queskin Jug Band. The Weavers, sort of Pete Seeger's early group. Credible guitar player named John Fahey, Mimi and Richard Farina, Mimi Farina, the sister of Joan Baez. Tom Paxton, folky from the 60s. (coughs) Phil Oakes, uh, sort of protest singer. Phil alive at Newport. Incredible guy named Sandy Bull. This was the stoner album to die for in the early 60s. He did an album called Inventions, I named this one Reinventions. And he was a multi-string instrumentalist who could, anything with a string, you put it on him and he just killed. So on this album, there's everything from sort of psychedelic him playing electric guitar to Bra- Brazilian music, to him doing Memphis, Tennessee, the Chuck Berry song. Uh, then I do a lot number of best ofs Buffy Saint Marie, Liam Clancy of the Clancy Brothers, another blues band from that area era called the Siegel Schwal Band, and then I'd also do sort of uh, multi artist compilations on various genres. And here's one, uh, Roots of Folk, and this is all the early. Sort of folkies, you know everything I just showed you. But
0: were these Ram- coming out at vi- on vinyl also, or only CD?
1: Just on CD. So Vanguard, believe it or not, this turned into a cash cow for Vanguard because um, the CD boom was just happening. And at one point, I was in New York, and I went to Tower Records. Fourth and Broadway in New York. And there was a huge, you know, end cap with all like 30 different Vanguard sessions, titles on sale. And and I'm looking at this and going, man, I did that. That, you know, great. So while I'm doing all this stuff for Vanguard, I'm also doing stuff for Rhino and for Columbia Legacy, uh, Phoebe Snow, uh, Carla Bonoff, a few people like that. Um, so you're,
0: oh, you're kind of a, um, a contractor or freelancing for these
1: independent contractor, yeah. and um, you know what they do is depending on the label and how much work was involved, they pay me anywhere from two to three thousand dollars per disc to pick the songs, sequence the album, uh, master it, find a writer or myself, write the liner notes, fix or do the label copy and and the artwork. So I, again, I sort of A&R slash product manage the entire package. And I work very closely with the art departments at, at, at the labels as well as The mastering people and getting tapes. I mean, that was a whole thing, just getting tapes, say, out of Columbia. They have all their tapes stored in this massive vault. And, you know, say you were looking for Karl Obanoff, they'd have 30 different versions of the same song that was in their master, and you had to try and figure out which one was the right one. case of carla we had all these tapes sent out and she starts listening to them going no 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 and then we had that more sent out and i finally just said look you know what these are you were there when they were recorded you pick the versions i'll get them i'll make sure they all get to you but you pick the ones you want okay so i did a number of these for a number of different labels Uh, One was something I did for um, Columbia Records called uh, Soundtrack of a Century. And it was a 20 CD set of the best Columbia show tunes, the best blues, the best rock, the best country, the best r and And I did the best international uh, product and acts because Columbia being a global label they had this amazing stuff from from Venezuela, from Mexico, from New Zealand, from Brazil, etc. So I went through again, this was sort of like an AR process. All these different international acts, pick the ones I like the best, then pick the songs I like the best, and compiled a two C D set of sort of the best of Colombia International. So this thing was up for a Grammy. I forgot who we lost for to, but it was, you know, some probably the Bruce Springsteen
0: live set. Did you get to go?
1: <laughs> I got to go. I got my little Grammy medallion they give you if you're nominated. And um, and it was sort of a big deal at the time. I, I'd also been uh, big in the Grammy organization. I was on the uh, pop Uh, screening committee for the Grammys for close to 20 years. And that sounds like, wow, that's a pretty big big deal. But (coughs) what it was, was sitting in a room with about 30 to 40 other guys. And you'd have to determine whether a song, say, was rock, hard rock, or heavy metal. Mm Okay, you know, okay, rock and hard
0: rock. The notorious Jeff Roltoll.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was something to to counter that. So I had been big in the Grammy, and I knew all the players and blah, blah, blah. So it was sort of a big deal to be nominated for a Grammy. That was kind of big stuff. So over the course of, I'm going to say, uh, probably an eight to ten-year period, I did over a hundred um, CD reissues for all the major labels, and with the everybody from the Whispers and the OJ's to Phoebe Snow and and Carla Bonoff, um, and then I do little work for higher things. There was a, a thriller reissue of the Michael Jackson album, and they needed somebody to do an interview with Rod Temperton about the making of Thriller so they call me up and say hey can you go to rod's house and and interview him sure you know so what was he like he was one of the sweetest nicest most creative guys on the planet had this beautiful house here in la up on mulholland overlooking the valley just gorgeous and he'd spent time in england germany and the us he was actually german and um you know, i go
0: and interview him and do stuff with him. So <clears throat> just, just for viewers who may not know, he was the prolific songwriter with Heat Wave and then with Quincy Jones acts like Michael Jackson and so forth.
1: Right, right. So uh, I'm doing all this stuff and, uh, you know, still alive and kicking and everything's going well. And um, you, you've you asked about ZZ Top a number of times. Um you can hold up uh, whatever you've got there on a ZZ pop tip. There it is, Chrome Smoke and Barbecue. So, uh, Rhino was under the, yeah, there it is. And I did the liner notes in that as well as uh, help compile all that.
0: There are the booklets in there. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, um, Billy Gibbons is an interesting friend character. Music legend that I've known for close to 40 years. I originally met him when I was on the road with P Funk, and I was at a gig somewhere in Oklahoma. I'm gonna think Norman, Oklahoma, or some someplace, some backwater in Oklahoma. And I would wander around in the crowd before the show and just check out who was there, blah blah blah. So I see these two guys. And this was before the beards were down to here. They were kind of down to here. And I look at them and I go, wait a minute. Is that ZZ Top, guys? I go over and introduce myself, and it was Billy and Dusty. And I said, what are you guys doing here? Well, we're playing here in a couple nights, and we were in town early. So we thought we'd come and see your show. Okay, great. So I bring them back and introduce them to George and all of P Funk characters, and they're like gassed out, like, oh man, this is great, and get them situated in a nice place to watch the show. And and afterwards, Billy comes up to me and he says, Hey man, can I have your card? Like, yeah, sure. So I give him my card. I think I'm never gonna hear from this guy ever. Two weeks later, phone rings, hey Tom, who's this? Hey man, it's Billy Gibbons. I'm like, What, really? so he says yeah i'm gonna be in town a couple weeks i'd love to hang out with you okay so got together with billy sushi was the big thing at the time and we'd go to these sushi joints and eat a lot of sushi and talk about texas blues and soul bands and all that stuff and he found a kindred spirit in me and we had sort of a crew of people that all knew what we knew and we called ourselves the Knowledge Brothers because we had a lot of knowledge up here about, you know, different types of music and the people who created it. So Billy became a Knowledge Brother. And this is when uh, Degueo came out, okay? Which to me... Maybe my
0: favorite.
1: I was about to say my favorite.
0: Sunglasses.
1: I'm bad, I'm nationwide, fool for your stockings. I oh, it's colored. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So um, both Degueo and El Loco, I saw them perform a lot. We became very good friends. And uh, he'd call me up, and we just shoot the shit for like half hour, 40 minutes. He was intrigued by Roger Troutman of Zap and the vocorder voice situation that he could do, and he just. I
0: have, I also have uh, this here.
1: Yeah, that was another one I worked on, and I'll tell you a little bit about that after I tell you about uh, ZZ Top. So at any rate, he and I became very tight, and we actually uh, went on a little road trip to Moab, Utah, this is just as MTV started to hit and they want to do their first video. And we did a road trip to sort of, how would I say it, block out or, or do a, a storyboard for the first ZZ Top inter, uh, video. We came up with the whole keychain concept and you know we hung out. He had the Eliminator car trucked into Moab, Utah. And we shot footage and pictures and all sorts of stuff. But we hung out. You know, I mean, we're we're good friends, you know, and we still are to this day. So, you know, when were, that
0: were you amazed at how much they blew up for MTV?
1: Well, that was that was mind blowing, and it went from him coming over the house and just hanging out for two three hours, and you know, having fun and drinking beers and and just talking music to. Blowing up touring the world and showing up at my house the next time a year and a half later in a stretch limo And you know, well, I can only stay 10 minutes, you know, that type of stuff. So at any rate um, Billy to this day is a really good friend and Aside from working on that uh, ZZ top box set he and I also wrote we we had what we called the summer of fun in 2001 where we wrote about 15 songs together and a couple of the songs have been picked up one of them was picked up by gary rosington of the leonard skinner rosington collins band a song called um the good side of good and it's a a gibbons vickers composition and another song was uh Called Gnome Zane. Like, you know, when you're talking, especially with uh, African American people, they'll say, uh, You know, I'm Zane. And it's N O M E Z A Y N E, Gnome Zane. Mm-hmm. So, uh, a producer friend of mine named David Z, David Rifkin, who did Johnny Lang and a lot of other stuff, I'd given him a copy of these years ago, and he'd find homes for them. So, We've had a couple of these songs cut Billy keeps threatening like, Oh man, I want to get one of these on the next ZZ album. But there's always politics and whether it's Rick Rubin or his old manager guys in the band or whatever that hasn't happened yet. But,
0: uh, well only do like one every five or 10 years. So yeah,
1: yeah. So, um, so then. You know, you held up the Zap record. of We're on the Z, so I'll go from ZZ. Let
0: me ask you about Billy Gibbons. Okay, you you ever get you ever get to see him just kind of like noodling around on his guitar
1: all the time? I mean, what
0: was that like?
1: I mean, being in a room half the size of this room with a uh, Pro Tools rig, cutting our demos. And there he is literally you know three feet away you know playing and I'm like again pinching myself how did this happen you know how did I get so fortunate not only to know this guy but to write songs with him you know
0: so one, of my, uh, one of my favorite that's incredible one of my favorite things with him was seeing him on Daryl's house I don't know if you saw yeah, that episode. yeah a couple of years where, ago yeah where he was just in that kind of relaxed situation and yeah awesome
1: well Billy is one of the sweetest nicest um, how would I say it you know how a lot of stars get sort of too big for their britches or you come up and hey man can I get an autograph or can we take a selfie or don't bother me can't you see I'm eating you know that type of deal Billy is the exact opposite not only will he take the selfie He'll take your camera and take the selfie with it, you know? So here it is, you know? So he has a little thing in his, uh, his uh, what do you call it, uh, breast pocket that he opens up. And uh, he'll sign autographs all day long. And uh, my relationship with him, aside from writing the songs, culminated in writing a book together called Rock and Roll Gearhead which is sort of an overview on his career with, it's a coffee table book with pictures of all of his cars and his guitar collection, his vintage collection, as well as his customs that he's designed. He works with a guitar luthier in um, Idaho, I think, called uh, John Boland and John's big thing is, And this is a lot of top stars, Steve Miller and a lot of people, Keith Richards, Ron Wood, a lot of them use him because what he does is he has developed a technique to make the guitar less heavy. He hollows out the interior. It's a hardwood guitar. It's not a hollow body, but it's hollow inside. And it keeps the tone and the electronics and everything intact But instead of, I don't know what a typical electric guitar weighs, let's just say it's eight pounds. Okay, you got an eight-pound thing around your neck every night for months on end, he'd get it down to where where it might weigh four pounds. So that's, a lot of these guys were developing shoulder issues and this and that, so that turned into his main thing. And Billy would come up with these insane ideas for guitar designs like one that has a a key that for a Mustang that you plug, you know, like it has a, like a car ignition switch and the furry guitars that he used in the ZZ Top videos. And and so I was, again, fortunate enough to go to his warehouse in Houston, which is a 40,000 square foot warehouse that has, So much memorabilia, equipment, stage costumes, posters, artwork, uh, stuff he's collected throughout his career. And we went through all of his guitars and picked, you know, obviously, Pearly Gates, his most famous guitar, but a lot of others. And we made this book. It's called Rock and Roll Gearhead. You can order it on Amazon. It's only available in paperback now. But it sold probably close to 35, 40,000 copies and uh, sort of cemented his legacy in a lot of ways and helped him out in establishing an identity outside of ZZ Top because, again, being the bearded wonder, everybody will see him and they'll go, hey, ZZ Top, but they don't know it's Billy Gibbons. So this book and the subsequent tours he did to promote it established him and his identity as the band leader and sort of the creative center of ZZ Top. And, so, just, just,
0: a, and just a couple of years ago, he finally put out his first solo record too. So.
1: Right, right. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, he's he slept on that couch right there. That falls out into a... A queen size bed. He slept there.
0: Um, Need to put a sign up. <laughs> I know
1: Billy Gibbons slept here. Um, he is truly a great friend, a great guy. Um, yes, he's quirky. Yes, he's eccentric. He's all of that, but he's one of the warmest, hardest, hearted, sweetest people you'll ever meet in your life. You know, so you know, he's
0: he's so iconic in his look with the beard and everything. But because of that getup. He almost seems like he doesn't age and very similar in that way to like Bootsy with the glasses and his get-up And I just saw on YouTube a clip from somewhere recently where the two of them were backstage or something and they were Together and it makes sense because you are talking about in the p-funk days when they had met each other right. and They seemed very friendly and all And I was looking at the two of them and thinking They're so different, but in that way. They're the same. Yeah.
1: Yeah well um, the Bootsy. We actually wrote a song for Bootsy when we were having the summer of fun, called "Dang," because Bootsy would always say "Dang," why do you know? Why is it gonna be like that? But the The other great Bootsy expression is "Why come?" instead of "How come?" Why come? It' gonna be like that. So anyway, we wrote wrote this song for Bootsy, and that was god 16 17 years ago and we had a lot of phone conversation with Bootsy again song never reached uh, vinyl or cd but i still have a copy of it somewhere we had a blast doing it um but that's when they met briefly way back in the 70s and then reacquainted and then when Bootsy was uh had his restaurant in Cincinnati Billy came through and went to the restaurant blah blah, blah. So now they're, they're sort of rekindled that friendship. And um, if we cut, if you want, now briefly to Zap and Roger and that whole situation, um, I was, I'm not going to say as tight with Roger Troutman as I am with Billy Gibbons, but so, so. there it is. Um, yeah, Roger, again, I did the liner notes for that and helped put together that whole project uh, for Rhino. Um, Roger Troutman, I've met and known a lot of creative people in my life. Roger Troutman is right up there at or near the top in terms of total creativity. And I was so heartbroken when, and I knew his brother Larry really well as, as well, when Larry and he had a falling out and it ended up in, Murdering Roger and Suicide for Larry, and oh my God, it was like, that was a dark day, you know? I was really, really upset about that. Um, But again, I maintained friendship with uh, Zap, actual nickname, Zap, of one of the Troutman brothers, and because I knew sort of the history and I'd actually been to their studios in Dayton, uh, Rhino asked if I would help put that together I worked with one of the staff producers at Rhino and, and kind of help steer the, the songs to two or three that they didn't have on there that I thought should wrote the liner notes and um, you know I like I said I've done a lot of stuff for a lot of different labels but uh, the compilation thing uh was going along great until first napster reared its ugly head but then when itunes came forward i was one of the first people who was sort of solicited by itunes to do playlists you know james brown playlist edit james playlist blah blah and what they'd want you to do is pick the most important, say 50 songs by James Brown, 50 songs by Edda, 50 jet songs by Aikantino, whoever. And, and then you'd have to write little blurbs on each song, where it came from, what year, blah, blah, blah. So they'd feed that into iTunes. And now let's just say Scott has a, a choice. He can either buy The CD I put together on the OJs with 12 of their best songs. Or he can go on iTunes and pick his own 12 best OJ songs and make his own compilation. So just as the internet sort of ate the record business lunch, uh, Napster and iTunes ate the record business dinner because... The compilation business was what was feeding the cash cow for a number of years. Just, they just put out the same record with the same artwork and it would sell 50,000 copies like that. And then that gradually moved into these compilations and they'd reheat the stew every two or three years. Now that James Brown thing, the way I got involved in that was a guy named Harry Wanger. Who went on to become the head of Universal's uh, reissue, more urban division, uh, putting out all the Motown stuff? Yeah, there he is. <laughs> so I, I didn't have a whole lot of to do with that, other than sort of provide uh, some maybe a photo here or there and some insight into various aspects of James Brown's career. I got a special thanks on there. That is the album that I am most proud of getting out. Um, that album is, came out of Bootsy's brother, Catfish Collins, playing me one minute of his guitar solo, on uh, Give It Up or Turn It Loose.
0: It's ferocious.
1: Yeah, it's just unbelievable. He, and he plays me one minute of this. I go, where did this come from? And, well, we were in Paris. They recorded it, and I was able to get this little just snippet of it. I said, really, what happened to
0: the tapes?
1: Oh, they're probably in you know some vault somewhere. So this guy again, Harry Wanger, that I was telling you about, um, after he did the James Brown thing they sort of hired him on as a staff producer in the urban department and one day we're talking and he says is there anything else that we haven't done that you think we should put out and i said well if you can find the tapes there's james brown live at the olympia in paris 1971 and it's with bootsy and that band so it's got to be ferocious so he dug around and dug around and found it and there it is. Again, special thanks. You know, I wish I had a little bit more to do with it because, again, if I had said, hey, check this out, might still be in the vault. I don't know. But uh, <clears throat> is there? everything in the record industry is very territorial. And once somebody stinks out their territory, they don't want anybody else kind of jumping into it. And Harry was smart enough and savvy enough and on the inside enough. I mean, he's done all these Motown box sets, like every Motown single, and, you know, Definitive Temptations, and Jackson 5, and Supremes, and all that stuff. So he's had a really good run in the compilation business. Um, Now the compilation business has gradually shifted into vinyl, and... A lot of young people who may be watching this are buying vinyl. What you have to realize, young people, is they're not always mastering or remastering what you're hearing for vinyl. They're taking the CD master and transferring that onto a vinyl disc. So you're just buying it on, on a different format for more money. So, you know. I mean, I've got all of my vinyl back around the way here. I've got a storage spot in this uh, little man cave, and I've got maybe three, 4,000 LPs. And, uh, you know, these things are now being sold for 20, 30, 40 bucks, you know, 180 gram vinyl, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> they don't sound as good as what I bought for five bucks 40 years ago. You know because they've been remastered and all this other nonsense. So So at any rate, do you have any questions for me? Because I can yak on forever as you well know.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, I think in our just <coughs> Minutes I had a, a couple of questions um, One was I was curious what your take was on the emergence you know, we've talked you talked about so many changes over the years in the industry what's what do you think of when American Idol came out and, and all these stars started coming up through these TV shows and things like that?
1: Well um, one of my best friends is a woman named Edna Gunderson who was the music critic for USA Today. And when American Idol first hit me being an A&R guy, I was fascinated by it because it had sort of superseded my talents as an A&R guy and now you had, you know, whether they were stars like Paul Abdul or studio execs like Randy Jackson or simply TV, you know, visionaries like Simon Cowell, um, they became sort of de facto AR people. And um, my friend Edna, I was one of the few people she knew who actually watched the show when it first came out. So I was quoted. In USA Today, probably twenty times over the run of American Idol, about you know this artist or who do you think's going to win this year? Blah blah blah. Um, look, the upside to American Idol is they've actually found some extremely talented people. You know Jennifer Hudson, uh, Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood. Daughtry, you know, four or five other acts that have actually blown up off of American Idol. Um, I got a big kick out of American Idol because uh, being an a guy, a lot of the listening that you would put into the developing your ears to hear what was working with an artist and what wasn't, um, they would capsulize it and... You know, I loved Randy Jackson because he'd say to somebody who just wasn't cutting it, "You know, uh, what do you do in your regular job? Well, I work at a, you know, a barista at Starbucks. You know, this singing thing, eh, this really isn't for you, man. I'd figure out something else because eh, singing, no, you know,
0: just throwing a few dogs in there, yeah, right.
1: Right. But the downside to these shows is um, in the Earlier segment of this, when I was talking about music publishing and saying how the song is king, um, and how I used to listen to a hundred songs a day to find the one that would be a hit. I'm sorry, I love Adam Levine. I love, you know, the voice, Kelly Clarkson, Alicia Keith, great. You know, I love all of them. Totally talented, great artist, all of it. However, Is Adam Levine gonna listen to 100 songs a day to find the one song for last year's voice winner to launch their career on? No, he's not. And nine times out of 10, and this is why The Voice, as much as I like it as a show, it hasn't really launched any careers. I mean, Every voice winner gets you know 10 minutes 15 minutes of fame the Andy Warhol spotlight on them and then that's it They're done. They're toast. I mean name last year's american I mean voice winner You can't do it and where are they now playing at a club in Cleveland? You know, what I mean, it's like forget it so um, both of those shows served a purpose in keeping the music alive, keeping people's dreams alive about becoming stars, uh, the whole celebrity aspect of, of being discovered and all that stuff. And like I said, a few have gone on to acclaim, but for the most part, the hard work of a and uh, like you give me 10 vocalists, I'll tell you which one's going to happen. But, I'm gonna need that song to make that vocalist happen, and that's where those shows fall down
0: for me. So, I have one last question for you. Okay, all right, ready for the big, big finale? Yeah. Um, what do you think is really good about the industry today, and what's really bad or wrong with the music industry today? Well, that's a double double-edged sword. What's good
1: and what's bad are basically the same thing. Okay, the democratization of music, the fact that anybody can buy a Pro Tools rig, set it up in their room like you've got or like I've got here and keyboard bank and, you know, guitar, too, and keyboard bass and blah, blah, blah. They can make music. May not be good music, but they can make it. So this one friend of mine, once the Pro Tools world happened, was an a and guy at Columbia. And he said, remember 10, 15 years ago? I'm gonna say this was in 2010, so eight years ago. <clears throat> remember you'd get 100 tapes a week? Unsolicited, people just sending in their tapes, hoping you'd listen to it. Yeah, he says, now I get 500 tapes a week. So the upside is everybody can create music. The downside is everybody can create music <laughs> because it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's easy to create music, but it's easy to create good music, real good music, but it's super hard to create great music. And there's a lot of mediocrity out right now from my perspective. And a lot of it is a throwback to artists from the past who have been rediscovered and reinvented in a new persona by a younger version. And are they better? Well, eh, to me, no, not really. But to a 16, 17, 18, 20-year-old kid who never heard what the new version of Joni Mitchell, Prince, Michael Jack, you know, they they never saw any of these people. They don't know, and they go, Oh wow, Bruno Mars. I mean, Bruno Mars is great. I really like him. I think he's fantastic. But is he Roger? No. Is he Prince? No. <laughs> so as good as he is, he's a throwback that has the savvy and the talent to recognize what great is and put a team around him to create great, but is he himself that creative an individual? No, not really. Then the other problem with today is it's songwriter by committee. I -hmm. used to work with these people where there were one, maybe two people, at the most three in the room writing a song. Now, A friend of mine who manages a very top act told me a story about how her hit was created. How did that happen? Well, they've got one guy who just comes up with beats. That's all he does. Then they got another guy who just comes up with bass lines. That's all he does. Then they got another guy who's a keyboard guy who just comes up with melody. That's all he does. Then they got another guy who comes up with the hook. Then they got another guy who comes up with the verse lyric. And then they bring the artist in to put a couple little pieces of icing on the cake. And now you've got six, seven, maybe eight writers. If you look on any Bruno Mars track, there's six writers on it. So it's like songwriting by committee. And then the other problem, (coughs) again, technology, auto-tune. I mean, look, I'll be the first to tell you, I have no musical talent whatsoever. I cannot play an instrument. My brother, who is a professional singer, yells at me all the time because I'm tone-deaf, I'm off-key, horrible, horrible. I'm off-key. Yeah, but plug either of us into auto-tune, and we're Caruso, we're Elvis, we're, you know, whoever you want to name. And that, to me, has homogenized the music, and made it same sounding. And that's when an artist like Adele, who comes forth, who's genuine, who is truly a unique talent, can blow up. Or Ed Sheeran, you know? I mean, I don't get me wrong. I like a lot of current music. But a lot of it, to me, like I said, throwback, auto-tuned, into oblivion. And
0: so I really like guys like Jack White.
1: Yeah, he's the real deal. And and there's maybe eight to ten of them in the entire industry right now, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just heard Nathaniel Ratcliffe and the night sweats. Great, really great, you know. So every now and then stuff comes at me and I go, Whoa, who's this? You know, Ed Sheeran when he showed up a few years back. I'm like this guy's killer, yeah. but great songwriter. And I'm not gonna hate taylor swift a lot of people hate on taylor great songwriter she went to nashville when she was 14. she started writing with a lot of the great writers in nashville she learned the components of writing a great song and that's what set her off you know so it still comes down to the song that's my number one thing for all you young artists out there listening write a great song and realize that if you're not a great lyric writer find a great lyric writer if you're a great lyric writer but you don't have the musical chops to do what you need to do find that other half to make you whole and that's that's how great music is created
0: well there you have it there's some great advice uh, for (laughs) any musicians out there and for maybe others that want to try to come back Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: Well, I appreciate your time and and your energy and the fact that you're doing this, I think, is a service to, you know, not just people like me who can tell their story, but all these people out here who actually give a shit enough to listen to it, you know? So, (laughs) So I appreciate the fact that you're doing this, and I think it's a service to the musical community. Good luck, you know, with all of your people and places and things that you stir up the pot and get going and, uh, you know, down the road, if you need any help, uh, feel free to contact me on anything else I can do here for you.
0: Much appreciated, Tom. A uh, pleasure as, as always. And make sure uh, you keep uh, me in the loop with, uh, you know, if you ever get that book out and, you know, whatever's new in Tom Vickers world.
1: All right, definitely. All right. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you. Funk and stuff crowd. And, Peace
0: out. With that, it's time to wrap up this edition of Truth and Rhythm. Part three, our concluding part of our three-part Music Insider series with Mr. Tom Vickers, the man who, by his own admission, learned how to swim with the sharks without getting eaten and without becoming one himself. A big thanks to him once again for spending the time and sharing his engrossing experiences on Truth and Rhythm. A sincere thank you, as always, to our listeners and viewers on Truth and Rhythm. Be sure to look out for upcoming episodes and catch up with previous installments at FunkinStuff.net on YouTube, iTunes, and other leading providers. We want to hear from you. Drop me an email at scottg at FunkinStuff.net. Let me know who else you want to see on the show, what you like about it, maybe what you'd like to see change, anything at all. Hearing a lot more from the viewers and the listeners, and it's a blast so keep them coming lastly subscribe on YouTube we need that support subscribe through the Funkin stuff channel to truth and rhythm show everybody that you support these artists and the incredible music that they made keep the funk alive and so with that as always this is Scott dr. James find saying keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one